0: Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. My name is Gus Docker. On this episode, I talk with Anders Sandberg from the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. We discuss various philosophical paradoxes surrounding the value of the long-term future. For example, our values change over time, and so should we evaluate the value of the future based on our current values, or based on the values we will hold in the future. We also end the episode with a lightning round in which I ask Anders his opinions about mind uploading, aliens, and what the most plausible moral theory is. Here is Anders Sandberg. Great. Anders, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me here. All right. so. There is this uh, metaphor of humanity as an immature teenager. Uh, How much do you uh, agree with this? Uh, Is this an accurate metaphor?
1: Like any metaphor, it's not perfectly accurate. Teenagers are, in some sense, in a particular developmental program. So some of the biological changes in teenagers uh, make sense uh, uh, for an individual, but doesn't apply to a civilization. Yet, I think there is a lot of aptness to it, too. Uh, It's both an immaturity. We don't have good ways of controlling our actions as a civilization. We don't really know what we're doing. We're also overconfident about it. And we have a fairly large amount of power that can allow us to hurt ourselves or other things of value in the world.
0: I think one one thing that the metaphor is trying to convey is this uh, picture of us becoming smart before we become wise. We are, we are smart enough to invent nuclear weapons, but not wise enough to know how to control them.
1: Uh, yeah, I think wisdom is very much being able to set your goals well. And in some sense, smarts can allow you to be wise. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have applied your smartness on that domain. And indeed, we are still struggling with figuring out what's truly uh, worth doing. And even when we know what's worth doing, We might not necessarily have self-control, so to say, as a society or a species to actually implement that rather well. The aftermath of COVID, for example, demonstrates that we actually have a pretty good list of things that should be done to prevent new pandemics. And so far, most governments have not been working their way through that list to actually safeguard uh, against
0: it. One way in which the analogy might break down is this fact that a teenager is perhaps 20% through his or her life, but uh, humanity could potentially be only uh, 1% or less through uh, through our existence. On the other hand, we could also potentially be very close to the end if we do not uh, accurately control uh, various existential risks. So what... What is it that we're trying to convey with this with this uh, metaphor? Is it simply that that we should we should become wiser, we should do more to not destroy ourselves as a species?
1: I think that's one aspect of it. I think quite a lot of a metaphor is about reaching maturity of some kind. but people are not just becoming mature by being wiser. Sometimes it's by getting more skills. Or settling in in a comfortable role in their society, or doing certain things, there is more to growing up than just becoming wise. Indeed, most of us uh, don't ac- accumulate much wisdom even when we're middle aged.
0: I want to talk about values in the future and which values will be will be followed, and and which values perhaps should uh, be followed. When when we when we talk about there being a lot at stake. If humanity goes extinct, we're assuming some kind of value. For example, we are assuming that humanity itself is is valuable. The existence of humanity is good, which almost everyone agrees with, but definitely uh, there are uh, some people who disagree. And so you have an interesting discussion in your book, uh, Grand Futures, about value drift, which is the, the distinction between our values now, if we can talk accurately about the values of humanity. And then the values that uh, humanity's descendants will have, say, in a thousand years. Could you explain this concept of value drift?
1: So right now we have a set of things we value. Some of them are simple things like pure happiness and absence of pain. Some of them are artistic and spiritual goals. Some of them are ethical principles like autonomy and equality. So we generally would say a world with a lot of these valuable things in it would be a good world. Of course, some of them are also coming into conflict with each other. So resolving these conflicts are an ongoing big project. But there is this disturbing thought that we also have differences in our values from the past. So today, sexism and homophobia and racism, they are not seen as acceptable. Indeed, they're seen as fairly immoral positions to have. Now, in the past, there would have been a lot of people, uh, even in our own culture, that would have said, oh, that's neutral, or even in the case of homophobia. No, 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 that is what God wants us to do. Uh, it's a positive value. You are the bad guys because you actually accept the gays. Oh, no, that's a horrible de- decline of morality. And then we can have an intertemporal argument here about who was right. Meanwhile, the Romans are saying, oh, compassion, that's for little old ladies. Clemency is the proper virtue here for a real man. Uh, Why are you going on about that? You have really declined. You don't even talk about honor very much. So you could argue, of course, that we have a moral uh, development, but actually we have learned important moral truths. Actually, today we are better at morality than the Romans. We have actually figured things out. The relativists at this point might beg to differ. But generally, even the relativists might say that, yeah, pleasure is better than pain. And that's something even uh, our distant ancestors among fishes would agree with if they could do philosophy. Now, the problem here is, in the future, we are going to change. Uh, Natural evolution is going to change us a bit randomly. But more powerfully, it's pretty likely that we are going to modify ourselves Our culture is going to change way more than between us and the Romans. And we're also likely to want to modify our bodies to fix problems like aging and maybe enhance ourselves. And that means that in the long run, we're probably going to become something vastly different and probably at a faster pace than in the past. So that means that we might discover new values. And that might sound good if you're an optimist about moral development. Okay. The post-humans of the future have discovered this value X that they say is way better than equality and justice and all that we're going on. They still acknowledge equality and justice as good values, but X is actually super important. So they're going to work hard on making sure there's a lot of X in the world. That might still be all right because there is a bit of equality and justice in that world. But it might also be that we can't imagine what that value is like at all, because we merely have 1.4 liters of brain. We don't have any quantum computers connected to our brains. And that's unfortunate what you need to have in order to understand these values. And if you're slightly less optimistic about moral advancement, you might say, actually, culture is drifting randomly. And in this very different world where we're living there in the service and space habitats and doing very quantum thinking their culture is utterly alien to us. So it encompasses values we can't fathom and don't care about. So actually the total amount of value in that culture might be very small. Occasionally there's a bit of glimmer of equality or a bit of happiness, but they're mostly aiming at getting value X, Y, and Z that we don't have any clue about. And some very disturbing, weird things that we might call Aleph, Beth, and Gimel, but it's even weirder. And they might conversely also be a bit concerned but maybe the post-humans of a very far future are going to not care too much about X, Y, and Z. So this leads to some problems for us thinking about long-termism and how good the long-term future could be.
0: There, there is there's a temptation here to say that, well, in the past, we were simply wrong uh, about our attitudes towards uh, sexism, racism, slavery, you name it, there are so many horrors of the past. Now we know better. Um, and and so the the p- past people were simply wrong what, but what this should uh, make us think about is how we could be wrong in the step in a similar sense. here one might worry that you know it it's we cannot give up on all of our values in some sense I think at least it makes sense to be stubborn about some of them it, otherwise we could we could be uh, you could call it blackmailed by our thinking about future people so so that they uh, dictate what we should believe. Um, do, do you see any value in being stubborn about uh, our current values?
1: Well, I think if we are careful about our thinking about our current values, that is the best knowledge we have at this moment in time. And we might know that there is better knowledge to be had, but we can't really try to base things on our inklings about that knowledge. If we have good reasons to believe something about that knowledge, we should just incorporate it right now in our values. For example, uh, I'm slowly drifting towards becoming a proper vegetarian. I should just cut to the chase uh, because it's pretty obvious that that's where my values and the practicalities are going. Uh, actually, I should just cut out meat. In this case, it might not be a seriously bad thing, but still it's slightly bad and I should probably ask try to be a bit more rational about it. Now, in practice, we have this problem that we know that there might be ongoing moral disasters, just like slavery was largely ignored as a moral disaster. Certainly, there's people recognizing that there is something icky going on here. You can find hints at that throughout history that people do recognize that actually the slaves are like us, and we're treating them badly. And I could even have been in that slave's place. But most of us glimmerings of maybe this is bad never really got anywhere until abolitionism really started developing and similarly we might be of course doing the same thing there are a few plausible candidates like maybe factory farming is going to be justly regarded by the future as absolutely horrendous and how could they do that they had all the facts yet why did it take so long but i bet that the really big moral disaster going on right now is something that nobody is thinking seriously about at all. And uh, in many ways, it's going to be interesting to see if we get to know what it is. But it's probably going to be making us cringe that, oh, yes, why didn't we see that? Now, the problem here is, of course, that set of future values, assuming they're much better, that might give us a reason to try to research them intensely. It's a bit like Nick Bostrom's argument for exploring the space of post-human uh, the states because there is an ongoing discussion among critics of transhumanism and transhumanists. Why should you want to become something other than human? Isn't the point of being an excellent human to be an excellent human? You don't really want to exit being human. And Nick's argument is that, well, there are states of being among humans that are really good, that we should justly strive for. They're very uh, excellent. And there is a vastly larger space of possible post-human states. And by uh, induction, we should guess that there are at least as good values out there as the best ones we can get. And there might very well be even more valuable states. And we should want to pursue them because we want to pursue value. Now, things are, of course, tricky because you might say, yeah, but is that human value or value as seen by some independent observer from kind of subspecies, aeternitas, uh, value that's not linked to any individual observer, but kind of from a neutral, universal perspective. So depending on your theory about value and who it's valuable to, you might end up with very different answers. And the same thing goes with this intertemporal comparison of values. The post-humans might be very uh, satisfied that they have great values and they made more of progress. But that doesn't mean that we should try to embrace random post-human values and hope that is it. We should instead try to examine and find pathways that lead to these values. And that is also where I think we get to one of the non-trivial predictions, that there might be valid and invalid paths to high value. So it could be, for example, that uh, by totally rearranging my brain into a completely different being, I could experience really great values. Except I could honestly say it's not me anymore. The past Anders and future Anders have no connection except that it was the same atoms. Uh, there is no real identity here. There is no link at all. It's almost like a, there is an existence of a future person that experiences good value. It might still be worthwhile for me to want such a person to exist, but not at the expense of my existence. But we can also imagine some winding path where I have a lot of experiences. I'm training at Lama temples. I'm getting quantum uh, nanomachines injected in my brain, slowly learning how to use them to reach some form of weird spirituality and getting new values and eventually ending up in the same spot as that uh, drastic change. You could argue this is a valid way of developing values. Every step along the the way, I endorse. I say, yeah, this seems to be a good move. Sometimes I make a mistake and I have to retreat and say, Yeah, that was a mistake. Oh, yes, let's forget the last past decade. I was so young and stupid. And gradually I find this because the steps are gradual enough. And I think this goes back to many of our intuitions about personality change. If my personality suddenly changed because of brain tumor, that's not a valid change of personality. If I got the same change because I actually learned to care about certain things or had certain life experiences, it would be a valuable change and it would be valid. And similarly, a society that just one day wakes up totally transformed has not actually changed opinion. It's just a new society. But a society that realizes that actually slavery seems to be bad and some activists are saying, yes, we have been telling you that for a long time. And here are even more compelling arguments and then undergoes a transformation into a society that says no to slavery has done this along a very valid path. We can, every step along the path, you can endorse and say, this was because of these conversations.
0: This was because of those experiences. So there's something about gradual change as opposed to quick change that makes it more legitimate. Yeah, gradual moral change would be more legitimate than fast or you could say uh, radical moral change. Is that what you're saying should be understood?
1: That is my intuition. Another question is, can you actually make a good argument here for why this is legitimate? So the most obvious thing is you can actually backtrack if you make a mistake. Uh, If you're totally transformed, there is in some sense no way of backtracking. Um, uh, Although you might imagine, of course, in that scenario that maybe there's an undo button. But usually when you are like a certain being, you rarely want to undo that state. But the really interesting problem might be that the the legitimacy is also because it's a lot of local interactions. A lot of people, organizations, and ideas have a legitimate interaction with each other. Very normal interactions. The brain tumor changing somebody's personality, even if it's a nice personality change, is in some sense not the kind of thing that we want to have as a tool for changing personality. Although you might imagine in the future, maybe we have therapeutic brain tumors to fix our personality flaws. Uh, But then they have become legitimate because we're a tool. And we also have ways of thinking about, do I want to actually use this slightly creepy sounding uh, treatment? Or do I want to change my personality in a different way? So I think the legitimacy here has a lot to do with both that the interactions are of a kind we recognize as valid. And this is, of course, slightly tricky because many of interactions we today might regard as valid reasons to change our mind might not always have been regarded as valid. Uh, so we use a lot of statistics uh, these days uh, to try to convince people that this is the right course of action. Before statistics existed, that would have just been almost like astrology. Indeed, you could argue that today we don't regard astrological arguments as valid reasons, but once we did... What, did that mean that they still were valid because people felt they were? Or was it that mm, the epistemic underpinnings of astrology are so bad that they were never good arguments even when people believed them to be? Which I think is what I would endorse. But there might be other forms of interactions that also have this interesting aspects. For example, the idea of a marketplace of ideas that you find in liberal thinking is very much like good ideas tend to win out against bad ideas if we have this fair uh, debate. Of course, the doubt we have gotten in the recent years is maybe in the marketplace of ideas on social media, the good ideas are not going to win out, which is a very disturbing thought if you come from the liberal tradition. I think it's still not entirely true, but it's certainly clear that it's not as simple as saying that truth will always win out. Truth has a lot of interesting marketing problems. Marketing tends to help ideas win out, and it's neutral towards the truth of the claim.
0: There's an interesting discussion about how fast we should move towards what we would consider uh, better future values. So, in in you could you could say one position is that if we think that we've discovered something that we in the future will value or will find uh, horrific, to say that in the future we predict that we will find uh, factory farming horrific. Well, then one position is that we sh- we should move towards eliminating factory farming as quickly as possible, and we could call that. Uh, the progressive position and then on the other hand you could have something you with that we could call the conservative position which is that there is some wisdom encoded in the way we've been doing things and that we should uh we should not uh, overturn the these traditions because they might have some values that we don't fully understand so we these two poles could be how we think about navigating our way to the to the better uh, futures we we want to have
1: Uh, Yeah, I I think that is a good uh, scale. And you can, of course, imagine, for example, the enlightened conservative position, which recognizes that, yes, and we also have uh, bias, uh, cognitive biases and motivated thinking, making me less willing to change things that ought to be changed. So that would be a conservative that do recognize that there might be a lot of hidden information in the system, but also recognize that I need to be skeptical about it. And you can find similarly... The progressive realizing, "Mm, yeah, we have a past track record of doing radical changes with disastrous effects. So you can interpolate between them and even try to find good methodologies for either of these people to try to give better arguments for why this time radical change would be a good idea, or this time we have a good reason to believe there's a lot of wisdom embodied in the practices of factory farming. That sounds like a really weird uh, argument, but...
0: I'm not that conservative to having to make that argument. Do you find it uh, disorienting to think about values from different perspectives, uh, meaning values from, from pe- people held a thousand years ago or values people will hold a thousand years in the future? Do you, does, this make you, does this make you worry that uh, there isn't anything real behind all of this talk about value?
1: I think there is definitely something real going on, and that is probably value itself. We are kind of value experiencing, value creating, value evaluating creatures. And that goes back a long time. Uh, In one part of the book, I think I might be mentioning what I called vertebrate values. I think we have some value systems that go back at least 485 million years. And those basic systems kind of deep in our midbrains, are pretty universal between us and snakes and dinosaurs and uh, the the, the chickens. Um, Those systems are there because, well, we're organisms that need to select between different actions, and there are various evolutionary patterns on what uh, actions uh, are reliably good. Now, then we have added so much brain on top of that that allows us to do both add entirely new values. When I enjoy mathematics, it's not just that uh, my exploration uh, subsystem in my midbrain gets to uh, be active. I seem to have generated entire new subsystems and new forms of values that can only be evaluated using a human like cerebral cortex. But these deep systems for action selection and somehow also giving us experience, they are very well preserved. And I think. In the big scheme of things, of course, that's a very peculiar arrangement of atoms. We don't find that in plants. We don't find that in rocks or stars. So there might be a lot of systems that don't have any form of value or evaluative ability. It might very well be that we make artificial intelligence with a very different kind of system like that that might come into being. But I do think that this vast variety of things that you might evaluate, and might value or not value, It's useful to be aware that it's different. Early on, I mentioned that uh, our current Western culture is slightly unique in that it's doubting itself quite quite often. Indeed, almost on an industrial scale. You can become a best-selling author by writing a book about how we're wrong about important things and really ought to change. This is slightly unusual among most cultures. Most cultures are rather complacent about them being the best thing ever, the gods chosen and embodying all the best things. And anybody disagreeing, better leave. Uh, I think this has been a great success trick because actually having this argument about that, maybe we're the bad guys, that allows us to try to become the good guys, whatever good actually means. And I think this is an important thing to have at openness. Openness is really important. And this is where I think science fiction has been tremendously helpful for many of us, Because it allows you to explore the idea about alien values, looking at humanity from the outside. Even normal fiction uh, in the literary sense is important because it gives you other perspectives. And sometimes that gives you a hint that your view of the world is not necessarily the only one. Even if you think you have an accurate view of the world, you might still recognize that other people have different settings for what is uh, enjoyable or not. Yeah, trying to cash this out into practical action is of course tricky. But again, being aware that there is diversity and being uncertain about what's right, that is very helpful against fanaticism.
0: I think it's definitely a healthy exercise both on a personal but also on a civilizational level to think about different perspectives and perhaps even to think about really alien perspectives and how we might be wrong about fundamental things. So one of the things you, you spend a lot of time on in your book, uh, Grand Futures, is, is thinking about the limits of, of uh, what we can do w- within physics. Is there uh, perhaps something analogous to, uh, we could call it the limits of, of morality? So is there some boundary conditions that we can think about? And I, I've given this some thought. And, and the only thing that's that's uh, remotely plausible to me is, is something like uh, consciousness uh, is what delineates what is within morality from what is outside of morality, so we don't, there is no uh, plausible morality on which we care about, uh, say, uh, unconscious rocks. Um, So do do you think, of course, philosophy and and moral philosophy is is miles away from from the rigor of physics, but do you think that it makes sense to think about uh, boundary conditions for ethics?
1: The, there are probably a few. One of the more trivial ones, but it's very convenient, is consistency. You can just look at the logical consistency of arguments, say that, yeah, inconsistent nonsense doesn't count as morality, which I think makes sense, except that you will always find at least some philosophers argue, no, no, inconsistent nonsense is uh, totally fine. Um, similarly, consciousness, I think it's pretty obvious that conscious entities matter morally. I'm not entirely certain about whether non-conscious entities don't matter morally. Uh, There are certainly some people uh, who take ecocentric ethics to the next step and say it's not just ecosystems that matter, but even non-living systems. So there are some people arguing against terraforming Mars saying, look, there is shaped complexity in those sand dunes. uh, So that means that we shouldn't be turning that into a, a copy of Earth or something new. The problem is, of course, if a rocket lands there and Elon Musk steps out and starts building a city, that's also shaped complexity. It's also an expression of the creativity of the universe. So it's not entirely obvious that that argument actually works. So I think some of the boundary conditions are like the, that in ought implies can. There are limits to our actions, but very, very wide. There is also a funny limit, uh, an upper limit on value. And that is simply that we can't represent values beyond a certain point. So I have a preprint with David Mannheim about this. Um, So the basic thing is, if I'm evaluating whether to do A and B, I'm trying to see which one has the highest value to me. But if I can't distinguish the value of A and B, then basically I have to be neutral between them. Now, you could say, well, wait a minute, value can go very far up, right? Yeah, but that's basically a number. You can imagine me having a computer register in my head and comparing these two numbers. And there is a limited number of bits I have in my head to represent these numbers. Uh, So the finiteness of my brain means that there is an upper limit to the value I can represent. At this point, you might say, wait a minute, there are lexical values too. A human life is worth an infinite amount of money, more or less. So that always has priority. But... I can represent that using bits, too. I just need a slightly more creative representation. Indeed, you can say maybe there are some superhuman values that one unit of that value is worth an infinity of human life. So that's even more important. Sure, I can kind of keep on adding to this hierarchy, But in the end, it still needs bits to represent things. And bits are have to be physically represented. And finite systems only have a finite amount of bits. So that you get an upper limit to the value you can evaluate and act on uh, rationally. This limit is so ridiculously high that I don't think it matters in practice. It doesn't tell us anything about the ultimate limits or what is actually valuable in the universe. But it does show that there is a limit to our ethical action if the, the universe did contain kind of real infinities of value we might not be able to distinguish them from each other so our actions are going to be neutral. But the real question is, of course, well, where does morality and ethics come from? How do you actually, is there just an infinite amount of self-consistent systems here that could be true? Or is it that actually the total number of self-consistent systems are a small number? could be one, or it could turn out that there are 17 self-consistent systems. So billions of years hence, ethicists are just listing these 17 systems and some cool theorem in some alien language explaining why these are the only ones. But then the post-human students ask the professor, so which one should I believe in? And Well, that depends on your culture, which one you choose. We don't have a good way between that.
0: So that is a, one of the conclusions you come to in, in Grand Futures is this um, finiteness of moral value in the universe. With this, this is an interesting way of mixing physics and moral philosophy together. And, just, and, and as you just mentioned, the, your point here is just that uh, well, physics can only support, say, uh, brains or, or anything that could pr- perform operations uh, that, that brains do for a limited amount of time. So is that actually, do, do, do you believe that the, the universe is finite in that sense? And can it, is it potentially infinite in another sense, for example, that something exists uh, forever, but beings that matter ethically do not?
1: So so my basic model is that uh, beings that matter morally uh, do exist in a finite period of time along a timeline that has so, uh, a finite starting point at the Big Bang and then probably goes on absolutely forever. But we are in this window where there is things to hope for and fear for and uh, care about. And it is a finite window. It might be a very vast window. Uh, it might be 10 to the power of 36 years long. It might be even longer uh, than that. But there is only a finite amount of stuff that we, starting from Earth, can put our uh, the hands on and turn into mind consciousness or whatever it is. So I think we're living in a vast but finite universe. And this is interesting because some people get very depressed when they hear that, even though I'm using scientific notation to show these absurdly big numbers that don't even make sense in any human context which are, for all practical purposes, infinite compared to normal human wants. But other people say, no, I want true infinity. And it's not entirely clear what true infinity would give us. Um, It's a bit like Donald Knuth uh, in one of his essays. uh, He defines a number related to Graham's number, which is just unbelievably huge. And then he points out that, well, if God gave me a lifespan equivalent to this number, that's about as good as eternal life. Because, well, uh, it is so much longer than anything uh, that you can actually possibly imagine. And indeed, if you think about theology, anything religious people ever wanted God to be can also be expressed as a kind of, okay, if God is finitely powerful, but that number powerful, that's still good enough for all the religions that ever existed. So quite often we have this hard time imagining just how huge finite things can be. Uh, We quite often think that true infinity must be uh, the really important thing. But actually, the finite stuff is quite valuable. Most of the stuff that really matters to us in our normal life are finite things. They're finite loves. They're finite uh, lifespans, finite insights. Yet, they make our lives so good. And even adding a bit to that might make them exponentially better. That's still finite. Uh, The problem is we quite often fall in love with this abstraction of infinity. Yet, the finite world we're surrounded with in its uh, complicated structure, I think we get a lot of value that might even disappear when you're out in the true land of infinities where everything kind of has a nice limiting point.
0: How would value disappear if the universe turned out to be infinite? In what sense would, would value disappear?
1: I'm not certain it would disappear. Rather, you would end up with a situation, maybe there is something that has infinite value. Uh, and. Well, what about something else that also has infinite value? If they are the same infinity, in that case, uh, they're equally valid, etc. In that case, you could also say they both got value num- uh, of 10 units. You can rescale things. The real problem is, rather, when you move around in a discrete set of numbers, like the integers, uh, that discreteness creates a lot of structure. We have the primes. We have a lot of properties of uh, evenness and oddness that creates a complex tapestry. When you move over to the, a slightly richer representation, like rational numbers, you get many more numbers in some sense. At this point, of course, a set theoretician will be wagging his fingers saying, no, 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 the cardinality of those two sets are the same. Uh, you get a lot more freedom, though. Once you move over to the real numbers, you get even more freedom and a lot of very weird and wacky numbers that uh, we normally don't use. But many of the uh, problems disappear, or rather the uniqueness of particular numbers just melt away into the continuum. And I think the same thing happens when you move over to uh, having real infinities around. Uh, Many finite things are just all the same. Now, this is perhaps me not, understanding infinity because I have a wrong mathematical intuitions and a woefully finite brain. But it seems to me that actually making a lot out of finite stuff is going to keep us busy for a long time. And it might very well turn out that had we infinite time, we would still be kind of dealing with the finite stuff indefinitely far. Because there are many weird things about finite objects. One of my favorite facts is that if you think about the Kolmogorov complexity of something, that is the shortest computer program that can generate the bit string that describes it. For most numbers, since most numbers are random sequence of ones and zeros, that, that complexity is about equal to the numbers. As you move to bigger and bigger numbers, the complexity just grows indefinitely. There are some numbers that have low complexity that you can just write them with all ones or one followed by 10,000 zeros, and that's a short program. But the program that generates all of the numbers... That's a very simple computer program. So the complexity of all numbers together is very small. Yet there are many numbers inside that set that are much more complex. But the way of finding them is, of course, counting up the numbers and dealing with the finite uh, finite numbers for themselves rather than dealing with the whole system.
0: There is perhaps a worry that uh, moral philosophy has gotten ahead of itself here. If we return to this uh, to this uh, metaphor of humanity as an immature teenager, maybe maybe us as a teenager now we've gotten very fascinated w- with the limits of what we can do, and uh, there is also, or perhaps we should focus more on a more common sense uh, view of what we should do. Say. Uh, So we've been discussing how we could alienate ourselves from our own values, uh, thinking about future values uh, and past values. We've been thinking about whether an enormous but finite future would be worse than an infinite future and so on. But if we're thinking about uh, whether it would be good for humanity to destroy itself, well there's a pretty common sense answer there if, if we and it's, a, it's an answer that we that we use uh, every day in our own lives, which is just we, we, we look uh, both ways when we cross the street. Uh, we spend lot of lots of our resources just trying to prevent just the people alive today from from dying of uh, disease and war and so on. And so I think it's important to stress that uh, nothing about preventing the extinction of humanity by. Engineer pandemics or a nuclear war or advanced artificial intelligence depends on these uh, esoteric philosophical discussions about uh, value, even though they are extremely interesting, to me at least.
1: Yeah, and I think it's also useful to hedge one's bets. I think understanding a bit about why the wider landscape helps you appreciate the practicalities of, okay, how do we make sure that the governance of bioweapons is sensible? I think, in particular, one of the importances of these weirder parts of ethics is helping us think about priority setting. Because we still need to think about, okay, I need to select a career. Am I going to diplomacy to try to reduce nuclear weapons risk? Or am I going to technology to try to fix better energy sources so we survive? Or should I be trying to make a safe AI? Or maybe I should actually go and and, uh, work on uh, malaria bed nets. That priority setting, to some extent, depends on the weird questions. There are, for example, those critiques of uh, effective altruism arguing that, look, if you think that the end of the world is infinitely bad, then you need to put in all effort for that. And that uh, is crazy, which is basically in the same formal form as a uh, critique in Peter Singer's view that we should be putting in all our effort into helping the poor in the world. So doing the abstraction, realize, hey, these arguments have some interesting similarities and dissimilarities. What can we learn is helping you buttress your priorities. So generally, my approach to many of these things is I think it's worthwhile to have some people work on the really far out stuff. I think it's also not worth having too many people. I'm pretty happy to be relatively alone in writing books uh, about what to do in the next uh, quadrillion years. I have a feeling that we are not going to need updating that too much. Uh, I have some ideas for how to build a solar shield to help Earth in a billion years, but it's not exactly urgent to finalize those things. We're going to have much better technology in just a million years. But having a sense of where you are in the big scheme of things, even if that's somewhat tentative, I think is very helpful. For example, the discussion about changing values uh, in the far future, some of that, of course, affects us when we think about how our values are changing as a culture right now over the next few years. New social medias are going to change how culture works. They're going to favor some values and disfavor others. We might want to think about how much importance we should put on that and make sure. Because some conservatives are saying, look, these medias are really bad. They're threatening really important values, and that's why we need to ban them. While others would say, wait a minute, change of values is actually fairly okay." And that debate is useful to have. So I think it's a bit like the big history idea. In order to understand history, it's a good idea to actually understand archaeology and paleontology and the history of life on Earth and the geology of Earth and the astrophysics of where Earth came from. You can zoom in and zoom out. Quite often, when you try to understand history, you will have to look at what was happening in that country at the time. But occasionally it's useful to know that country is what it is because it's a mountainous place. And those mountains came about because of that folding of Earth's plates. And sometimes that also allows you to zoom in and zoom out in the flexible way for the future. The Long Now Foundation have been arguing that we should think of it now as 10,000 years, which is kind of a nice convenient length of time. But I think we actually need to be able to zoom out and zoom in much more. So we can zoom out and see the potential grandness of the future and the strangeness of the future. And then we can zoom back in and think about what do, am I doing next Tuesday in the light of this? One of the uses of this all in front of the vast is to realize that a lot of stuff we're doing is petty. It's super useful to recognize that actually I don't need to sweat those details. I should be working on something that really matters. That is one of the benefits. But I do take your point that, yep, the far out reaches of meta ethics and uh, metaphysics, most of them don't matter for whether you're to give away your money to the beggar on the street. For that, you might need to think more about uh, politics or your own psychology.
0: Fantastic. Okay, Anders, do you want to do a lightning round with with uh, quick answers to to sure, spicy sure. questions? I'm
1: trying to do quick answers. <laughs> yes. There's a risk that I'm failing that, but yeah.
0: <laughs> let's try. Let's try. Okay, uh, and these will be unrelated to each other. Will we have will we have uploaded minds before we have artificial general intelligence? Uh,
1: I don't know. Uh, I think the we, I can give a time estimate roughly for uploaded minds if they are possible. But I have no clue about AGI. You can give it your time estimate. So I would give fifty percent chance that we got them by twenty sixty. Uh, maybe if we push it, we might be getting uploaded minds by twenty forty if we're really lucky. But AGI, it could happen uh, in ten years. It could take a hundred years.
0: Are you. So your what we could call AI timelines are still very very open, even though you've you've spent decades thinking about this. Uh, or perhaps because you've spent decades thinking about this. That, that's an interesting uh, fact.
1: Yeah. Uh, generally, my, my experience of AI timelines is we don't know how to predict them. And that is in itself useful. It gives us a sense that, okay, we need to act urgently because it can happen soon. But we should also expect that it's going to take much longer than expected.
0: Will humanity
1: ever leave the solar system? I think humanity, in defined as so, something mentally descended from humans, will leave a solar system with a ha- fairly high probability. Will a biological human ever leave a solar system? I think if that happens, it's going to be some kind of weird stunt by an advanced <laughs> civilization showing that, look, we can even send a person over to Alpha Centauri. Of course, people have been
0: living there for thousands of years, but we can afford to even send a person here. <laughs> because it would be so difficult to transport a biological human through space uh, or interstellar, interstellar travel uh, in that sense. And so they, they might even parade it around as an example of how advanced they are scientifically.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, showing off. Now, th- there is another way biological humans might leave a solar system, and that's the slow boat approach. So imagine that you have self-sufficient habitats that can mine deuterium to run fusion reactors from cometary ice and get enough carbon and other compounds from that ice to build new habitats and biospheres. You could imagine these guys settling the Oort cloud, and over time, they might migrate into the Oort cloud, or overlapping solar system, and spread by diffusion between stars passing by each other. This way, over a span of about 4 billion years, we could actually settle the whole galaxy And at that point, usually, in my simulations, deuterium runs out and we have to settle the inner solar systems uh, that we're not used to.
0: How worried should we be about a future totalitarian world government?
1: I think we should be fairly worried about that. We're seeing more and more tools for automated totalitarianism. They're still clunky. But then again, uh, so were the surveillance cameras uh, back in the 1940s. Uh, many authoritarian governments really love the ability of using AI and automation to keep their population alive. So I think we need to make safeguards here. We need to invent a better science of making safe and sane governance.
0: Are there aliens in the universe?
1: I think the universe is spatially infinite. So I think the probability is essentially one. But I think it's sparsely populated. I think uh, our nearest neighbors are probably a billion light years away or something like that. So I'm hoping we will get to meet them, but it's going to be far in the future.
0: What are some of the most interesting unanswered questions about grand futures or perhaps uh, thinking in the tradition of big history or interdisciplinary science as, as as you've done with your book? What is what would you be really delighted to to hear a new paper uh, coming out about?
1: Uh, one is What is the structure of history? It seems like there are some important hinge points where things could go in different directions. Uh, And uh, we can certainly cite various historical events that look like that. But were they actually hinge points? Maybe a lot of history is much more stable. Or a lot of history is actually totally chaotic and random. So any minuscule change just makes uh, everything uh, go in a different direction. I would love to have a general theory about how... The distribution of importance of points in time and space distribute themselves. Another question I'm interested in is, is there really interest in cryophysics? We know a fair bit about physics at high temperatures and chemistry at our normal temperature. There are some reactions that you can do in a lab in liquid nitrogen that cannot happen normally at high temperatures because the compounds are so unstable. What about chemistry and physics close to absolute zero? We know weird things like superfluidity and superconductivity happen. Are there other complex things like that that happen close to absolute zero that we totally overlooked because we're
0: such hot creatures? Do you think we are currently at a hinge in history, meaning that this is a particularly important time uh, and our actions matter particularly uh, much today? I
1: think we're likely at a hinge. Uh, It might not be the hinge, the most important moment in the history, but it certainly seems like there is a lot of important turbulence and choice points here. We might be setting standards that are going to affect how we set up space, biotechnology, nanotechnology, and artificial intelligence. We are making choices about what to invest in. And we're also somewhat disjointed in our governance. I think this might be a rather crucial period.
0: For listeners who find this uh, conversation uh, insightful, what book should they read? Uh, Of course, aside from uh, from Grand Futures, which everyone should read. Grand
1: Futures is taking its time. I'm hopefully done with it before the singularity or something. But (laughs) uh, one book that really inspired me was Barrow and Tipler's The Anthropic Cosmological Principle. Uh, My book is, in some sense, a sequel. So in that book, they looked at humanity's place in the universe and combined a lot of philosophy with looking at physics and the future possibility. It's a bit dated, but still an amazing masterpiece. I'm also very fond of Freeman Dyson's work, yeah, because that combines a deep humanity as well as a very inquiring mind poking at interesting questions from fun angles. So disturbing the universe might be a great starting point. And then we have Olaf Stapledon's science fiction novels, Last of the First Men and Star Maker. These ones are really old science fiction stories. But especially StarMaker is the great uh, grand future story. It's about intelligence in the universe. It's groping towards survival and complexity and trying to figure out what is it all about. It's unimaginably vast and it's very different from
0: everything before and after. Should the average person sign up for cryogenics or cryonics? So... I did a cost-benefit
1: calculation where I estimated what is the value of my life to me, basically, how much in-depth would I be willing to go uh, before I said, nah, that's not fun enough. And then I did an estimate of the cost of cryonics and concluded, "Mm, I think it's more likely uh, than that threshold. It's actually rational for me to, uh, given how much I value my life, that I should be paying for cryonics. But other people might make a different estimate. So the average person should try to do their own estimation.
0: Fantastic. Anders, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you. This has been so much fun.